1: Hello and welcome to the New Books and World Affairs podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Jeffrey Gordon. The common sense way of thinking about what representatives should do in democracies tends to revolve around the concept of responsiveness. Representatives should respond to the interests and demands of their constituents. However, this account of representation does not tell us much about how citizens form their preferences. If political representatives and other actors have the ability to shape the interests and preferences of actors, this raises a specter of manipulation, voter incompetence, and false consciousness. All of these concepts question whether citizens have the capacity to form accurate beliefs about their own interests and to judge whether or not politicians are serving them. In her new book, uh, Making Constituencies, out from University of Chicago Press, my guest Lisa Dish argues that concerns about manipulation and voter competence are overwrought because they are grounded in a mistaken understanding of how representation works in democracies. Building on the constructivist turn in representation, Dish argues that the starting point of theorizing about how representation should work in democracies should be on the processes through which representatives of all kinds from elected politicians to media outlets and social movements constitute the very groups that they claim to speak for. Rather than asking how we can make politicians respond to the interests of voters, Dish argues that we should be asking how political actors, parties, and movements can mobilize constituencies for projects of social change. Lisa Dish is professor of political science and women's studies at the University of Michigan. Lisa, hello.
2: Hi, Jeff. Thank you so much for this great opportunity to talk to you about the book.
1: Um, terrific. Uh, You note in your acknowledgments that you started this book almost two decades ago when the concept of political representation was beginning a renaissance among political theorists in the West. What motivated you to work on political representation, and how does this book relate to your earlier work, such as your previous book on the two-party system?
2: Thanks for asking that. You know, I've always been broadly interested in democratic theory, um, and- my previous, the, the immediately preceding book to this one was called The Tyranny of the Two-Party System. And so in that book, I was very much interested in the disjuncture between U.S. institutions and ideological diversity. So I mean that there's greater ideological diversity in the U.S. electorate and the U.S. public than, than you can see in the fact that we have here just two major parties. We can compare ourselves, depending on your perspective, favorably or unfavorably um, to Europe, where you can have a range of parties on the left and a range of parties on the right. And at the time that I wrote that previous book, I was partly delighted that... Bill Clinton had been elected president because I hadn't seen a Democratic president since you know before I was in almost in elementary school, right? <laughs> well, I guess I should count Carter, but his was such a fleeting um, event. So this was really this was the first time that I had voted for a a big victory, a big Democratic Party victory. And what I got was, and I knew this, of course, partly, but I I guess I had hoped for a little bit better. But, you know, what I got was a Democratic Leadership Council Democrat who was um, very much in the neoliberal spirit of the age and who um, dismantled the welfare state, which was (laughs) not really something we would want a Democrat to do, um, and promoted you know, and succeeded in promoting NAFTA.
1: So, yeah, um, and, uh, it was clear, I know yeah. that yeah. a lot of, a lot of, uh, um, left liberals or leftists of my generation feel similarly about uh, barack obama you know when i voted for barack obama uh, he was my first presidential uh, election vote in 2008 and uh, i definitely wasn't voting for larry summers <laughs> and i was yeah, very sad yeah. that that's what i ended up getting
2: <laughs> um, yes yeah. i know i think we all felt that way about larry summers but um I think there, from my perspective, there is no comparison between Barack Obama, who bailed out the auto industry, enacted the single biggest increase to the US welfare state since Medicare and Medicaid, um, and did many things, many fewer things than we need, but many things nonetheless to foster and highlight the continuing problems of racial inequity and racial justice, racial injustice in this country. So. I know you all felt that way, but I felt like many problems that Clinton made
1: worse. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Explicitly. Right. Uh, Obama was in some respects a mop up, uh, operation and a, I'll follow through on this though. He couldn't operation for the Clinton presidency. So, um, yes. So in any case you can, you can relate to how I felt about Clinton and really I felt that there was a need for, um, representation of greater ideological diversity of course on the left of course i don't want it to be represented on the right because i feel like you can only go more extreme on the right but you know, no one is ever fair in politics so i wasn't being balanced but uh that was uh very much something that was important to me and so i got um I got interested in this practice from the 19th century called electoral fusion, and that is something that we still have in New York where it's called cross-nomination, and it can be where where uh, an alternative political party um, nominates on its ballot line or ballot, because in the 19th century they had separate ballots, it nominates a major party candidate. And what you see with that kind of practice is the actual details of the coalition that brings a politician to power. Now, we know that um, in the recent New York mayoral election, um, we saw uh, rank choice voting used to accomplish very much the same thing, which was to show that rather than give uh, Mayor Adams the margin of victory on the first round of, of tallying, which would have given him a plurality win, he had to stay in the race until he had a, a 50 plus 1% majority win. And that win showed him where that he had won with coalitional support and he could see on the ballot lines of the minor parties in um, New York, which survive in part because they are able to practice fusion voting. He could see on those ballot lines the kind of coalition he had built you know how much that's going to pull him to the left we will have to see <laughs> you know events not just who elected you but the events that emerge in your uh, administration do affect you but in any case the the things that i have worked for as an activist and been interested in as an academic are things that to me make our democracy more representative of the range of views that exist in our in our country. And um, so I I moved from that really sort of quirky, historical question to thinking more broadly about representation itself. And I suppose that my experience working for this fusion reform, which I did activist work to, um, to help to bring it about, it awakened me to The ways that when political activists come to your door, they are often speaking to you either about initiatives that you'd never heard of, but you end up thinking, oh, yeah, that fits with my principles, or they're offering you a way to get somewhere you wanted to go that hadn't occurred to, to you before. So they were bringing a series of bills to your attention that you didn't realize were being debated. Or in my case, I was bringing a voting mechanism to people that they had never heard of. And so you cannot say that those folks had an interest in what I was offering them before I offered it. And so it it really made me think about the work that advocates as well as elected representatives do to shape constituencies for the things that those advocates and elected officials end up uh, either promoting or voting for. And that's really what led to this book.
1: That's a... uh a great segue to uh, starting to dive into the content of this book and and talk about your your argument and your way of thinking through the uh, consequences of this idea that um, um, representative claims uh, do as much to or more to construct their constituencies than to uh, respond to pre given interests. Um, Political scientists and journalists typically think of constituencies as well-bounded social groups that are brought together by shared interests, and they speak of mobilization as efforts by politicians and other actors to activate these groups through the use of targeted payments or messages. We hear this in political discourse all the time about um, efforts to uh, pass spending bills that uh, feed this contingency or this... uh, a location in particular that is a swing district or something along those lines in order to uh, try to appeal to these voters' interests uh, uh, in in the hope of of getting their vote in the next election. Uh, But your point of departure is that we should think of constituencies as the effects of political action, not the origins. What are some of the ways that politicians and other social groups make constituencies?
2: Thank you for asking that question. It really does lie at the center of the book. (laughs) Um, So politicians and other social groups make constituencies first and foremost by raising awareness of problems or even reframing problems and debates that we're having. And the easiest way or the easiest example that comes to my mind of this is the feminist movement. And when I think about the feminist movement of the 1970s, which is really the feminist movement that I grew up understanding, the thrust of that movement was to detach what we thought of as sex from gender roles. So a big message that I took away at that time at my age was um, just because women get pregnant, that doesn't mean that they have to be solely responsible for child care for 18 right. years or 30 years whatever <laughs> whatever it is now. Um, and so it was this distinction between sex and gender and it was this understanding that gender was a social construct and that nothing in sex had to, to lead necessarily to it. Well, so that was one set of one set of ways of framing a feminist initiative. Um, as the feminist movement grew and evolved, there was a lot more attention to the uh, to the fact that women women can be part of a disadvantaged category and also part of a privileged category. So that was a very interesting reframing of the problems of feminism, not simply to Uh, fight against the frustrations of people who ended up with lesser careers because they chose to have children, but to think about the interests of the people who provide the child care for many of those women or uh, or the women who were liberated to go pursue careers and then (laughs) hired other women to raise their children. That was one reframing and reproblematization. But the feminist movement today has, uh, in addition to to building on those kinds of insights, and again, I'm being very schematic here, I'm not trying to give a comprehensive and thorough history of feminism, but um, the feminist movement today very clearly um, in relationship to um, the gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual movement Uh, Which we typically refer to under the category of queer. This movement is thinking about gender binaries themselves. And they have pointed to how many of our assumptions about sex make it over into gender when we think of gender as a binary between masculine and feminine or men and women even and they have pluralized gender and they have um, and they have made the refusal of binarity a household word which is so far away from what 1970s feminism was able to put into the mainstream it's 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 wondrous and glorifying so that is one way that Uh, politicians, and especially I'm talking about advocacy groups right now, make constituencies. Who had the words for all of the constituencies that are part of the feminist movement today, 50 years ago? We didn't. We didn't. We didn't have, you know, GLBTQ, for example. Um, So... I could keep going on that, but oh, I'll gosh. shift the topic. Um, I want to, not the topic, but uh, just a little other part of the answer, which is that I want to say that politicians and social groups are most successful at making consist- constituencies when they are able to bring together an unlikely and sometimes unprecedented um, mix of, of partners. And I'm trying not to use simply the word coalition because that can connote bringing pre-existing groups together. And what I'm really talking about is um, a change in the map of politics so that new identities emerge and new patterns of allyship and opposition emerge. And so one really, really wonderful book about that is Eric Schickler's book called Racial Realignment and he retells the story that we tell ourselves about um, how we ended up with red and blue America as we know it today. He, he retells that story by really taking the clock back a lot farther than we usually do. Many people like to start that story in 64 and 68 and talk about backlash to the civil rights movement and to the Democratic Party's embrace of the war on poverty. Um, the 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 thesis of Schickler's book is that this reorientation began already in the New Deal, in the Depression, and it began at the state level, a level of state politics, with state-level politicians and advocacy groups promoting a A significant realignment of the Democratic Party, which had been the party of economic liberalism, but it wasn't the party of racial liberalism. And how did racial liberalism come to seem as though it should be aligned with economic liberalism? There was no necessary connection between those two. But the work that advocates and party representatives did to bring those issues together and bring supporters of those issues together and change the fights that those people thought that they were engaged in by virtue of of melding those two issues. It's a fascinating story and it is really a great illustration of what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a, a fantastic example. Um, and I think that in these discussions of, of, Making constituencies by combining these distinct elements together into, as you say, uh, not just a coalition of pre-existing parts, but um, a new political group or entity that um, changes its component parts in the process of combining them together. Um, um, One aspect that I think gets misunderstood sometimes is that um, it's often because it comes uh uh from a tradition of of cultural marxist theory or post structuralism it's often thought of as uh oh well can you really make new constituencies out of uh discursive speech acts uh which the word articulation uh uh, uh seems to give rise to but uh one thing that i really like what you do in in um, this early part of the book where you're, where you're talking about how politicians and other social groups make constituencies as you link it to the policy feedback literature in public policy. And you show how um, not just uh, speech acts, which are, of course, enormously important uh, uh, components of politics and do have performative consequences uh, in terms of, of, of creating uh, uh, new social groups or, or, or alignments, but you also talk about um, kind of meat and potatoes, more concrete public policies, uh, um, shaping groups as well. Um, Could you talk a little bit about how, um, um, what the concept of policy feedback is and how that exemplifies this process of making constituencies?
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'm glad that you thought of that example of making constituencies. Um, So the concept of policy feedback, argues that um, oftentimes constituencies do not precede the creation of a policy that benefits them, but it actually follows and is consolidated by that policy. Um, uh, The the feedback literature also argues that um, what policy does is it often makes arbitrary divisions in the population. So it's not as if there is a, we often talk about target populations for a policy, but that's a very misleading notion because many policies which thought they were targeting something, when they went to define the purview of the policy, they learned that it was extremely difficult to find that target. And that they ended up making, as I say, these arbitrary divisions as they did so. So some wonderful work about that um, concerns the first veterans, the enactment of the first veterans benefit policies, which I think were in the wake of the First World War. But no, 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 I'm completely wrong. It's I'm sorry. It's, it's actually in the wake of, of the founding, as a matter of fact. And there were massive fights in the House and the Senate over uh, who should count as a veteran. And you would think that that category is straightforward, but it's really not because people serve the army in many different capacities. And so are you? do you want to give veterans benefits just to those who fought in combat? Do you want to give veterans benefits to people who played a drum or a bugle? It got super complicated. And the fight over the policy was in part the fight over defining that constituency. Um, A different and incredibly interesting example comes from Joe Sauce's work on AFDC, which was aid to family with uh, dependent children. So it's it's what we used to call food stamps, uh, and it's the policy that got dismantled by President Clinton. Um, The the distinction between that policy and uh, Social Security disability and what... (laughs) Sauce makes two arguments. One of the arguments he makes is that recipients of Social Security Disability Insurance tend to, uh, they do not have a negative perception of themselves or others who are recipients of the same benefit that they have. That is different from AFDC who feel stigmatized by the benefit that they have and who are averse to others who receive that benefit even though they're receiving that benefit. What this means is that you are much more likely to see activism and advocacy on one's own behalf or one's group behalf from the recipients of disability payments than uh, food stamps and other programs associated with welfare relief. But another thing that Sauce says that's incredibly amazing is that if you just had a description of the characteristics of the people who fall into each of those groups, you would have a hard time drawing a line between who fell on the AFDC side of the line and who fell on SSDI side of the line. So he's telling us that policies not only have effects in terms of how people uh, the identities that are ascribed to people and their really boldness in civic activism and active efficacy there's that, but there's also the idea that the that policies draw arbitrary lines in heterogeneous populations. They are not systematic in the way they are implemented and they do not dispense benefits to groups of likes. They dispense benefits to heterogeneous groups that only the fact of receiving the benefit gives them something in common.
1: Right, and uh, um, as I was reading this, and as I was listening you talk about it, I'm I'm a comparative politics uh, 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 specialist, and I focus mostly on um, post colonial countries and, and the global south. And I was thinking about uh, um, all of the different ways that um, colonial powers and then post colonial states uh, uh, did exactly what you described they they would create. Um, um, rights for different groups, um, uh, different population groups, uh, based on these very abstract categorizations that d- very rarely um, um, uh, conformed to the reality of heterogeneous populations that are intermingled and, and highly diverse in and, and the and, As a consequence, they wound up uh, creating these seemingly primordial, quote-unquote, ethnic or tribal divisions uh, uh, that were really um, outcomes of the very process of categorizing society rather than um, um, groups that pre-existed these these policies that colonial powers or post-colonial states enacted. Uh, um, and and they divided, as you said, heterogeneous po- uh, populations up in arbitrary ways and created social groups that uh, nowadays political scientists continue to misidentify and and, and misconstrue as as somehow um, primordial or pre-political uh, uh, entities. Um,
2: that's such a great example and illustration. Yep, that's absolutely right, and it. Really brings to the forefront something that you are quite right. Political scientists often forget, which is that um, difference is the mark of power. It's not the undergirding of power.
1: Right, exactly. And and I think that um, I think that you know you still see a lot of political scientists uh, who will you know gesture to a social constructivist understanding of how. Uh, of how social groups come into um, come into being, but it's just so easy to take demographic data or economic data um, and put that on the right hand side of your regression uh, equation, and then put your political outcome on the left hand side of the equation, and just wind up reifying exactly the kind of um, common sense primordialist, as you as you put it. Uh, uh, um, uh, understanding of how social groups come into being even though um even though these are you know scholars who have read benedict anderson and you know the constructivist canon uh it's just so easy it's so much easier to do in a in a way to to create linear causal relationships when you just assume that social groups are, are exogenously formed, uh, outside of politics. Uh, yeah. You
2: just made a, a beautiful connection between methodology and the way that we think about groups, which has a major impact on the way we think about representation.
1: <laughs> right. Um, so, so critics often perceive constructivist arguments like yours as a sort of naive voluntarism or instrumentalism. They would take you as arguing that political actors have the ability to divide up society however they see fit in their pursuit of political power. Um, and instead, they suggest that there is some sort of an objective uh, reality, uh, objective—I put in, in scare quotes—pre-existing uh, uh, social division uh, uh, of pre-existing social divisions that politicians and social movements have to take into account if they are going to craft policies and messages that succeed in any given situation. And you can see parallels of this debate within the Democratic Party right now between so-called populists who advise President Biden to adopt economic policies that target. Uh, constituencies that they believe to hold the key to electoral victory in the next presidential election against more ambitious progressives who want to address the um, um, the sources, the underpinnings of, of class, race, and gender divisions that divide up uh, the electorate uh, head on and try to articulate new, uh, um, new groupings um, uh, based on a more ambitious policy agenda. Um, how would you address this charge of of voluntarism or instrumentalism?
2: Yeah, thank you. I, I think our conversation, even up to this point, has already started taking on that critique. But you're right that that's a very that's um, a very almost kind of a reflex that critique comes out. So the first thing that I always want to ask is: Has ever has anyone ever been correct about who holds the key to electoral victory? <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's a that's a valid point. I mean, uh uh you see op-eds from the same um uh political strategists advising Biden to, you know, tack to the center somehow, even though he's already pretty centrist. Uh uh you know, who have led failed presidential election campaigns for the last 30 years. Um uh and they're just advising the same old, same old thing. Uh, uh election after election, uh, time after time.
2: Yep. Christina Beltran has a wonderful book about the, the quest for the Latinx vote and the belief that if you could just get the Latinx vote, you'd have democratic victories from now until the end of time. And um, her wonderful book, appropriately, talks about what a heterogeneous group Latinx, which doesn't even, I was going to say Latinx people, but that doesn't even make sense, but I will just for the sake of uh, speaking without too many qualifications. But, you know, when you look inside that group, you're talking about people who came from Mexico, people who came from Cuba, people who might've even come from Spain, you know, Lord knows what else. You're talking about first, second, third, and fourth generation uh, 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 immigrants, immigrants. Um, and citizens, now citizens, but initially immigrants, to the United States. And so the minute you try to activate that group by offering it the policy that you think is gonna make it turn out for you, you find that it is heterogeneous. And you find that parts or all of it disagree with you about its interests. So this notion that there is some sort of objective reality of preexisting social divisions and preexisting interests Rarely proves to be true, or it's true in such a crude way that it doesn't really help us very much as we try to appeal to them. I mean, yes, of course, Uh, there are reliable, there are groups that vote reliably Democratic, big D Democratic, Um, and it's you know if you're a Democrat, it's fortunately hard to alienate those groups, Um, but. They can sit out. Right. And so the idea that that we know the actual combination of policies that would bring out those voters, or we know the kind of person who would bring out those kind of voters, mm -mm. I mean, we wish, but political science isn't great when it tries to be a predictive science. Um, And so I'm, of course, not saying that there's a blank slate and politicians who find the magic words are gonna conjure up the constituencies and combinations of constituencies that will support them in their policy. I'm not saying that at all. But as, uh, as you just elicited, as we uh, talked with your question about uh, policy feedback, you know, there are empirical studies of how acts of policy and how advocacy organizing and messaging changes the debates that we're having and changes the way that people identify themselves and who they are willing to admit as an ally or define as an enemy. There are empirical studies on that. That is what my argument is based on. Um, And I am in no way saying that it's all a matter of words.
1: Yeah. I think that that's a really uh, uh, effective answer um, uh, because um, the whole strategy of political targeting and uh, of trying to maximize votes by treating the social as a given and just trying to um, direct side payments or, or policy favors to uh, uh, particular constituencies. It always winds up uh, uh, not succeeding because uh, the groups that, political strategists have in mind or that they have, you know, some sort of aggregate level statistics on uh, are never as homogeneous as, as they imagine them to be. Um, And, uh, and no matter how fine grained and micro level your data is, at some point, your your data is going to be so fine grained and so um, <laughs> um, so accurate that it starts telling you what we're already saying that populations are heterogeneous and it's very difficult to uh, target uh, uh, particular constituencies because uh, um, people are uh, irreducibly uh, complex. Each of us individually, we all have different uh, material interests or different um, um, identities uh, that we wear uh, at different points in our, our day-to-day lives. And uh, political parties and social group, uh, social movements can appeal to those different identities and interests in, different, in lots of different ways to divide up the population differently um, from one election to, to the next. So there's, there's a lot of contingent, a lot more contingency than I think some of these, uh, um, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of demographically minded, uh, uh, people, uh, have in mind. And I find that, um, um, a lot of these uh, people who think that you know the white working class believes X, Y, and Z, what they're really doing is taking the representative claims of self-appointed uh, representatives of the quote-unquote white working class uh, at face value, and not really, um, uh, not really thinking about. Um, what are different ways to to talk to people who have very complex identities and very complex uh, ways of of relating to the world.
0: Boy, that is really well put. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Um, so under the responsiveness criteria that serves as the foil to your argument, uh, representative claims are democratic if they serve the interests of their constituents. Um, but communication with political uh actor but sorry uh if but if the interests of constituents are constructed in and through processes of communication with political actors we run into what you call the constituency paradox politicians are supposed to respond to constituencies that they help to create if we reject the view that voters interests are formed outside of the representation the representative process uh how can we evaluate whether a representative claim is democratic or not, or legitimate or not?
2: Another very, you've hit on another very important um, question. And thank you for your your, um, interpretation of the constituency paradox. You really put that very well. Um, When I look at the book, I think, "Mm, I'm not sure I made that clear enough. So (laughs) I appreciate uh, that you uh, give it that lucidity. So, I think we've been kidding ourselves if we think that congruence provides that kind of measure, that it lets us know when the policy positions of a representative are um, aligned with their constituency. Um, Our measures of congruence are not fine grained enough to give us that confidence by and large. Um, And so, I don't think we've lost anything if we agree with me (laughs) (laughs) Um, that this idea of a politician being aligned with the interests of of the constituency gives us democratic legitimacy, since I feel like that is um, a much more complicated thing to figure out than Mm -hmm. um, than we, we speak about it as if it were much more easy than it is. I also think that this question of, how can we evaluate whether a representative claim is, is democratic or not? I think we have to wonder who the we is in that sense. I think that we assume that there's a job for political scientists and especially for political theorists to determine when democratic outcomes are legitimate. And in the work of a political theorist named Michael Sayward in his book, The Representative Claim, he proposes a really, I think, fundamentally interesting idea that we can only evaluate legitimacy from the citizen standpoint. We can't stand, uh, you know, for, for many of the reasons that you were just talking about, we cannot stand at one remove from the electorate and say, well, you just voted against your interests and you just voted against your interests Um, And you're deplorable or, you know, uneducated because you're doing that. If we, uh, so to think, so, I mean, uh, Sayward urges that shift to the citizen standpoint from this sort of arrogant standpoint where we think of ourselves, we scholars think of ourselves as adjudicators of political conflict and of the adequacy of electoral outcomes to constituent desire. Um, If we make this shift, the questions we want to be asking are, do people take up the claim? And how or why did they? What sort of activism led up to it? Were there competing claims in play? And by in play, I mean that were accessible broadly um, or that you know, that people couldn't avoid hearing. You know, we're all in our media bubbles now. Um, did the representative claim tap into a cultural reservoir and which cultural reservoir or reservoirs did it tap into? Um, if we think again about your favorite example of political disappointment, uh, President Obama, um, he was, I'm exaggerating there. Um, <laughs> he, <laughs> uh, he, people had a tough time with a lot of his American dream rhetoric. And that rhetoric, of course, tapped into a cultural reservoir of belief about American exceptionalism, about this being a nation founded on liberty and equality, and having a, a, a mission, depending on how you define that mission. If you're a Puritan, it will be about actually serving God, but that mission rapidly turned into something that was often called republicanism but would sound a lot to us today like democracy and are we living up to that mission and how do we do it? And many people heard in that rhetoric a kind of conservatism and that's not necessarily wrong, but for at least since the Civil War with, um, or at least since the beginning, the, 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 the whole period of the Civil War, that question whether the belief that we are on some kind of democratic mission. That question whether that belief is fundamentally conservative or whether it inspires, enables, and mobilizes uh, egalitarian transformation in the co- this country, that's been a debate. Right. <laughs> and so, right? And so we hear Frederick Douglass tapping those ideas, yelling at America for not living up to them, but believing in the ideals and reclaiming them. Same with Martin Luther King. So people who took when when they heard Obama using this language and they thought, well, this you know really shows he's really kind of a conservative at heart. No, he's tapping into an ambivalent cultural reservoir, as many many claims do, and it's very you know. So we, um, I think that we can, if we think about who takes up claims? How do they hear them? How do they take up the claim? Were there competing messages that they could have reached? What sort of organizing went along with the message? What cultural reservoirs do they tap? Do they tap ambivalent ones? Do they tap ones that are straightforwardly perhaps unenlightened or straightforwardly enlightened? What are those claims doing? That's how we we need to have a much more complex discussion about whether people are getting represented. And I think it was extremely difficult for people in the wake of 2016 to acknowledge that there are real things happening in the United States that Mr. Trump tapped into. And they are things that I both despise and benefit from as a middle-class, white, very educated American woman. Native-born American woman. So, it's these are hard truths to hear about ourselves. Um, but the battle over legitimacy doesn't even begin to launch the political work that it takes to pursue a democratic project.
1: Right, and and I think that um, I I want to uh, pick out pick up on something that that. Uh, you mentioned of uh, who is the "we" in 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 your question, because that's something that I've been thinking a lot about. Is uh, what is the relationship of the, of the social scientist to the question of representation, and um, uh, even social scientists who would, who would disavow it find, I would argue, wind up. Uh, um, making some kind of claim about whether people are voting in their true interests. Uh, um, I know in comparative politics, there are big literatures uh, around, um, you know, why people vote for basically a lot of people, People in comparative politics want to know why do so many people particularly in the global south vote for politicians who are plainly corrupt by our by our standards by our understanding of what the appropriate public-private distinction is um, and and I would argue that they wind up uh, almost with a uh almost coming to a sort of false con- problematic false consciousness kind of answer uh, in a lot of situations or um, um coming to a lot of answers that are that are that are, uh, uh support paternalistic interventions by um you know donors uh donor countries, the World bank and so forth um and I think that uh um, rather than um asking uh why do people vote for these representatives who are plainly you know, Corrupt or problematic. Um, what you seem to be arguing for is is a shift uh, in our tradition, uh our a- a- attention to the conditions of possibility for actors to mobilize new constituencies and to create new social divisions and articulate new kinds of 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 ways of dividing up the populace and and constructing um, um, political claims, basically. Uh, and making space for new sorts of political groups to emerge that um, that challenge these sedimented ways of, of dividing up society uh, uh, that older approach that the responsiveness to representation largely takes for granted. Um, so uh, I'm I'm kind of skipping ahead in in the questions that I sent you, but I think that this is a good place to to, to ask: um, What are some of these? Uh, um, conditions of possibility for actors to mobilize new constituencies? What are some of these um, um, uh, uh, institutional or structural conditions that allow people to question their, their interests and, and form new interests and form new preferences uh, and, and um, challenge sedimented ways of, of identifying themselves?
2: That's a really difficult question to answer. We can look at history and certainly the history of the New Deal, which is when the last major, what political scientists call realignments um, uh, began to occur. And we can see that um, oftentimes an enormous crisis um, brought on in part by an exogenous shock can create those conditions because everything goes topsy-turvy. I'm not entirely confident in generalizing, or even that I have the example of the New Deal correct there, but uh, in generalizing from it, because under conditions of fear, people tend to dig in to what makes them, what they are most comfortable with. They don't venture forth. And, so that may not be a great answer. Um, you know, we're we're in a we're in a period of transition right now. It's just it's not clear transition to what, and many things have turned upside down. And there are many indications of people making a serious reexamination of their values, and it's happening at all ends of the economic spectrum. It seems or scale, um, you know, with people deciding, you know what. With as much stress as that job gives me and as little money as it brings in, or even if it brings in a lot of money, which is easier to quit your job when it brings in a lot of money. But there's a lot of folks saying, you know, work, it's just not worth it. You know, there's too many activities in this country that are that are necessary, that have to be done, but that are unsupported. And I can't keep subsidizing those. So I need to not work so that I can do, I can take care of my aging parent or my pre School-aged child, or my child who's in precarious schooling that pops on and off online and offline, <laughs> you know, and makes it really hard for me to live a double life. You know, folks are are looking at uh, an unrewarding work and refusing it right now. I've never seen this in my life. Um, that's really interesting, and. Um, perhaps some of the most privileged are able to break the nexus between where you live and where you work. And what will, you know, how will that remap the geography of our politics Um, and just the simple demographics of our country for people to be able to not have to go to um, a city or a place where there's some kind of, I was going to say factory, but I feel like I should say, you know, Amazon package
1: right. <laughs> center <laughs> yeah.
2: um, to get employment. You know, what, what, how will that change the democracy? So, so there's a lot happening right now that might open up the possibility for some of these things to be changed, but hmm. we are, are for, for new alliances to be formed around really different and broader and in some ways more urgent objectives um, certainly, I've been worried about uh the effects of of climate change for almost all of my adult life, and this is the first time that's been mainstream. Right. Um, so things are changing, and yet we have this predominant representation that uh, the us and other countries are more polarized than ever, and that people's political, people infuse their political identity with existential meaning, by which I mean uh, that political identity seems to organize everything else we do the music that you listen to and the music you don't listen to the movies you watch those you don't watch the kind of coffee you drink what you are willing to pay for it the newspaper you read if you still read one of those or other media that you consume it it everything you do has not it, everything you do has partisan significance um we are you know we are being this is how we are being um told to understand the significance of partisanship today
1: right um uh speaking of uh of, of, of coffee uh playing a role in, in our our partisan uh culture wars um uh my brother-in-law uh, uh, gave me and my wife a uh, a bag of coffee beans from I can't remember what they're called but they're very a very self-ascribed like uh, right wing uh, uh, coffee company that has like an assault rifle on on the bag of, of coffee beans. Uh, and it's like, okay, you're giving this to the liberal in the family. We get it. <laughs> you
2: know? <laughs> and you want say that it's a game because you know people you know we've been my my mother started grinding our coffee in the 80s but that took a long time to catch on so whole bean coffee from a right winger that's
1: kind of- yeah, that's that's already a difference yeah right as opposed to you know folgers or something exactly uh, yeah
2: right so maybe you guys can see your way around i don't know
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> That's a good point.
2: (laughs) So, I, I, you know, we started with the question of the conditions of possibility, and I really can't give you a very good answer. I mean, Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I think, well, this is,
1: I think this is the direction that I would like to see empirical studies of political representation really turn to and really historicize social cleavages in a way that, um, um, Comparative politics research just has refused to do, um, uh, in my in my opinion, for the for the most part. Um, uh, comparative politics, uh, I'm I'm grounded in, you know, democratization studies, and uh, I think of Barrington Moore, uh, his very influential, "The Social Origins of Democracy and Dictatorship." That kind of set the tone as a work that um, uh, established the economy as this pre-political sphere that uh, divided society up in certain ways. And then those social groups battled it out with different consequences in different places. Um, but there's no political actors hardly at all in in any of the case uh, uh, narratives, as I recall it. And uh and then, sure, you have the bringing the state back in and their approach to trying to uh, um, restore political institutions and the autonomy of the political, but then they lost sight of of the social cleavage question altogether, and they just thought of the state as this thing that's um, sitting above and apart from society. There's yet to be a real synthesis of these views, in my, in my opinion, uh, uh, that Tries to um, dialectically trace out the relationship between uh, social cleavages and political development in a way that uh, uh, is faithful to the um, um, back and forth uh, kind of uh, um, reciprocal nat- nature of causation between the social and the political. That um, and you know in our in our political science that just yearns for nice simple parsimonious linear explanations uh, uh, just doesn't really feel satisfied with <laughs> that kind of uh, more historical approach but um, uh, that's I think where where the study of representation needs to go and I, and I also think it needs to be more ethnographic and talking to people about uh, what do they, not only what do they think about a given political party or movement, but what do they think other people are motivated by, right? And what are their ex? How do their how do they form their expectations about what other gr- groups or what other people exist in society and what those groups are going to do and how they place themselves vis a vis those groups? Because I think that that also has a lot to do with with why people vote the way they do or participate in politics the way they do. I think that. We, those are just two of the ways that we can um, try to get at this question of how do social the social divisions that drive politics and democracies change over time as a response to democratic politics. I uh, really
2: like the way you put that because I think I took your – I mean, in order to even be able to answer the question of the conditions of possibility, we would need to study politics and political change differently. So I appreciate right. the way you put that. Yeah. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. And, um, because I've also been thinking about, um, um, so I'm, I'm working right now on how, um, um, Turkish military actors have tried to design constitutions to elicit certain kinds of electoral outcomes that lock in their policy preferences over time. And, um, why, They've run into uh, unexpected consequences each time that they've tried to tailor and design a constitution and an electoral regime to um, um, make certain lines of social conflict uh, um, uh, more prevalent than others, or to uh, take basic questions of who the Turkish people are off the table. and uh, I've just been struck by how much of the literature on electoral institutions, on the consequences of electoral institutions, still continues to take um, um, the division, the cleavages that exist in society as a given, and we don't ask enough in, in institutionalism. Well, what are the institutions that shape political subjectivity, and and how do people actually come to form their how do political institutions shape how people come to form their ideas about politics and their understandings of the political world? And I think that that's something that's really overlooked. Um, uh, when we think about what are the conditions of possibility for people to think differently about uh, what social groups they belong to and vote for parties that they wouldn't have voted for before, we need to ask how are people's identities shaped in the first place?
2: That's a great question great
1: point um, so I want to uh, move on to um, uh, how you um, address uh, uh, self-described political realists who have um, um, been very critical of, of democracy and of voters in recent years uh, because you describe your, yourself as a, as a small as I guess they're all small are realists but um, as a as a realist in the sense that you're um um advocacy of, of democracy and your support for mass democracy is not based on some sort of idealistic or moralistic um, um, basis um and uh, and so a big point of your book is that realists can be small d Democrats too and this argument challenges people like Christopher Aiken and Larry Bartles and Jason Brennan who argue that people are either, too informed or plagued by psychological biases to understand and act on their own interests in a responsible way, <laughs> or in a, a a a way that's you know actually faithful to their own interests as these scholars would define them. Um, why do you think their claim, these scholars' claim to the realist mantle, is illegitimate or um, not? Uh, not really grounded in, in reality and how does your understanding of democratic realism differ
2: Mm-hmm. yeah so yep yeah, they you 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 set this question up really well in the sense that the message of their book is that nobody can uh, no one who is realistic about what the u.s population is capable of doing could possibly be a small d democrat um, so you can't possibly imagine that mobilizing popular constituencies would make democracy better. Um, Brennan's book makes a particularly unfortunate argument for the juncture in w- at which we find ourselves now, uh, in that he argues that um, the path to improving democracy is to adopt one of many ways of ensuring that fewer people vote. Now, he would not... <laughs> He's not countenancing voter suppression, but he does think that democracy would be better off without broader mass participation, without broad mass participation, which is, which is quite a message um, in these days of the filibuster that just killed the John Lewis bill. So their idea of realism is being realistic. Whatever that means, whatever realistic means, realistic about the shortcomings. So it's being realistic conditioned on a very pessimistic view of the of American voters. Um, I think that's a really flat concept of realism. In fact, it just doesn't. It you know it doesn't doesn't tap realist theory at all. Um, I define realism as a critique of power, and realism rather than take human behavior as a given or a limit of politics, um, it focuses analysis on what are the institutions and structures that produce the behavior that we see. So rather than attributing the behavior that we see to human nature or the intricacies of the human brain and how that uh, results in particular psychological dispositions, I think that I am a a social constructivist. I believe that we made our world and the world that we made acts back on us and makes us in turn. Um, And we have only to think about all of the habits that we newly adopted as the pandemic threw us into our homes and other spaces that were more or less safe, depending on who you were. Um, We have only to look at all the changes that resulted from that in the way we do things. To know that institutions and habits and practices shape us. Um, What we are doesn't come from inside, deep down, wherever else, brain chemistry. It's institutions and practices. So that's one thing, one way that I define realism. And um, Jeff Isaac has wonderful early work that really helped concretize that for me. and f- for me, what, what necessarily follows from that is a conflict-centered understanding of politics. And what I mean there is very much informed by E.E. E. Schatzschneider, who, um, as he began the wonderful semi-sovereign people, described a riot. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, And he described how a conflict draws people into politics. Um, And not then one could say a conflict, or one could say where you draw a line of conflict recruits people into politics. So the battles you choose, um, and the, the, the battles that you choose to have, and the stage at which you choose to have them draw people, into politics. Um, We environmentalists know this really well from what they like to call NIMBY or Not In My Backyard. Um, When you start a conversation around where you're going to locate a facility like an incinerator or something else, when you start it with the site already being defined, um, you're going to have mobilization for and against that particular site. You aren't going to get A broader discussion of what do we need to do systematically to manage our waste, if that's the kind of facility that we're talking about. Um, And that's where the public participation should come in. What do we need to do to responsibly manage our waste? That's the political question. Where the best site is, and by best, I do not mean the site that will draw the least resistance, but nimby politics leads us to that, that we... Locate such facilities where we know that they will draw the least resistance, which imposes them on the most vulnerable members of our society. Uh, that, that understanding, um, understanding the effects of conflict on policy uh, outcomes and on the debates that we have, um, is 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 for me a really important um, realist premise an example for the idea of a conflict-centered realism besides Schatzschneider who theorizes it in witty and charming ways in that short book, which every political scientist should read and political theorist should read. (laughs) Um, But a, a great sort of illustration that's more recent is Suzanne Mettler's wonderful work on the submerged state. And she's talking about things, uh, policy programs that do not announce themselves as forms of public subsidy. And one of the things, one of the points that she makes about those programs, for example, the ability to write off your mortgage interest payments on your income taxes, for example, if you're a a, a homeowner. Um, One of the points that she makes is that these programs fly under the radar in ways that direct transfers to groups that are clearly um, identified as being uh, funded by public funds, those direct transfers do not fly under the radar at all. They are frequently debated. They are often targeted for cuts, whereas these other forms of submerged state benefits fly under the radar and don't get fought over. Well, you can't tell me that we're going to have a different discussion and different groups are going to be drawn into the political conflict if we have a discussion about eliminating the mortgage interest tax, rather mortgage interest tax write off, than if we had a discussion about shouldn't we reduce welfare or unemployment benefits? Um, so, her she's criticizing both the kind of higher and lower status that are are attached to different kinds of policies, and those that benefit the middle class have a higher status than those those that we explicitly call welfare and think of as targeting the poor. And she's talking about um, their political security. So I like that uh, illustration of I, I like that way of getting us. I mean, I think her the very desire to theorize something like the submerged state comes from a conflict centered perspective. Comes from someone who's interested in asking the question: What do we fight out about? What can we fight about? And what is difficult for us to fight about because it's not even visible?
1: I really like that that uh, uh, last bit because I think that's really the crux of of where you're trying to, to to push the study of representation from the competence or incompetence of voters to uh, the question of what do we fight about and what can we fight about? And I think that uh, this would open up a, a very different set of questions for the study of political representation, both uh, normatively and, and empirically. Um, so, um, uh, you also talk a lot about fears of manipulation of voters through fake news uh, which uh, or, or through some other, you know, uh, these, these phrases that abound in our political discourse about the idea that um, people are, uh, again, unable to um, accurately assess their own interests because they're being fed. Uh, misleading information, or they live in media silos that um, uh, don't expose them to the the capital T truth, or or whatnot. Um, you argue that we shouldn't worry so much about manipulative political messages. Uh, so, what should we be focusing on instead?
2: Sorting. <laughs> And I don't mean sorting as a phenomenon. I mean sorting as a message or representation of what is happening to us. So this picture. So that's the so that's the political scientist word for it. But the partic- the picture of red and blue America being divided, sharing no tastes, listening listening and reading to diametrically opposed things. That is a representation of our political condition right now that mitigates against any form of shifting people's identities and patterns of alliance and enmity, which is what I really believe that we need to do. Um, There's a terrific argument against the concerns with manipulation, um, uh, both in a wonderful book um, by Robert Gooden and in the political science work that started to come out about, those, about fake news, <laughs> and I know that the jury's not in on this yet, but um, much of the social science research into this fake news can, does not show that people got injected with propaganda and they voted in ways they wouldn't have otherwise it doesn't appear to be uh, manipulation of people's actual beliefs doesn't appear to be as easy or straightforward as those who want to sell you their services in doing that would like to lead you to believe.
1: Yeah, I, I believe that 100%. I, I think that um, the people who believe the most in, um, you know, various conspiracy theories are people who are already primed in some way to believe in, in them, or, or the, the fake news is already uh, um, it already works within a worldview that would lead them to participate or, or vote in a particular way. Um, um, and uh, I think that that's right. And, and again, your, your big point is that rather than focusing on, um, can people filter through fake news? Can people uh, uh, see through these misleading messages? We should be focusing on. Um, well, what uh, uh, what is our media environment structured like? How how is it organized? What kinds of uh, perspectives are being silenced? What kinds of of, of um, new ways of seeing the political world uh, are are being um, blocked out or filtered out uh, um, through uh, the sorting that's driven as much by representations about processes of sorting uh, as it is by uh, any sort of exogenous uh, pre-discursive or um, pre-political forces. As you've noted, it's almost kind of a a performative uh, uh, effect of, of talking about sorting that uh, we start to think, well, uh, I don't want this this brand of coffee because <laughs> they're right wing, for example. To go back to <laughs> <laughs> the earlier one, or yeah. Yeah. Uh, 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 what have you, or um, um but um, uh, yeah, I think that that's uh, that that's a, a persuasive way of thinking about the the problem of manipulation because. You know, we go back to the question of um, what kind of uh, uh, external standpoint can a scholar evaluate whether somebody is being manipulated or not? Because that implies that they have some understanding of what a voter's true interests or what the voter should prefer is that is clearly paternalistic and clearly not something that um, a lot of social scientists would sign on to if they really thought through the implications of of the questions they were asking. Really, are uh, I would just like to wrap up by asking, uh, what's next for you?
2: <laughs> well, I'm not going to be writing a book for a while because I am a city council member. I got elected a year ago. Yeah, as I finished this book, I was running for office, and I am. My project is really to be. Uh, a good representative. And what is my definition of that? It is to um, really encourage the activists who are working so hard to make Ann Arbor a less inequitable place. And um, today, my actual project was to write a persuasive resolution on why we need to fund our deer management program again, in order to protect biodiversity. (laughs) So That is where my thinking and writing and and reading and extra time are going now.
1: That sounds wonderful. Um, So thank you so much, uh, Lisa, for joining me. Uh, The book again is um, uh, called Making Constituencies. It's out from uh, the University of Chicago Press. Uh, Lisa Dish, thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Jeff. This has been wonderful.